every time I do make a mistake, my promise to myself is to never make that same mistake again. Take the steps to avoid that, to be aware of it, and always, always, as Herb Stone would say, I'll always do what's in the best interest of my fighter. And that's a mantra that I have on my jacket that I carry. I have it written out on me. And it's Herb Stone on the bottom of it because that's the best, that's what we do. I'm here for the best interest of the fighter. I'm not in for the best interest of me. That's why if there's a bad cut and I'm able to control it, it doesn't defer to me as you took it from the one yard line in, man. You scored the touchdown, Basil, you did it. No, you did it. I was just there. Reflecting back on my last training session, something was very apparent to me. As the sets went on, as the rounds increased, my level of fatigue went up. Now this was a Bulgarian back training session. And with that said, I started noticing that my form and my technique wanted to break down. Now, if you can recall back to your last hard workout or the last time you pushed yourself in any activity, the technique over time is going to start reducing or start diminishing. That's something normal. However, when you think about the name of the game being recovery, especially in between training sessions, how efficient, how effective is your recovery protocol so that when you come into the next bout of exercise the next time you perform a game or a sport, you can do so and not be limited so much by the last training session. One of the biggest additions to my recovery protocol over the last six months has been the Mark Pro muscle activation device. I've been so impressed at my level of circulation it's increased, the lymphatic system and how it's pumped the lymphatic system. It's reduced soreness. It's therefore improved my mechanics when I'm moving. It's helped me reduce overuse injuries and anybody listening to today's podcast will get 10% off if you want to check out this device. I'll include a link in the show notes. All you got to do is use code THEPATH for 10% off. Check it out. I think you will love it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to the PATH Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. Today, we're bringing on Mike the Mechanic Basil. Now, Mike is someone who I've known way back since I was 17 years old. We were both working out of a holistic lifestyle center in San Carlos, California, and he was running boxing conditioning classes in that facility. And so way back, I got to experience his energy, his technique, his coaching. And in exchange, I also supported him for a period of time. And Fast forward years, we developed a deep friendship and he's someone who has always been in my corner and to the best of my ability, I've done the same for him. And in today's podcast, you're going to get an inside look at the life of a cut man in boxing. Now, Mike is someone who works with the highest of high levels. 
in boxing and fight sports. And he's basically played every single role in the boxing game. So for a period of time, he was a boxer. He was also and is a boxing coach, trainer. He wraps hands. He's a cut man, most importantly right now. He's a strength and conditioning coach. And so he brings such a wealth of knowledge and experience in all aspects of fighting. And today you're going to get to hear, once again, an inside look at what happens in the ring when a fighter's down and he doesn't know if he's going to get up? What are the conversations that are had between coach and fighter, the fighting mentality, the struggles that fighters go through, the importance of a cut man, the importance of wrapping hands, and so much more. The stories that this man tells are true. They come from the heart. And I can't wait for you to listen in on this very interesting and exciting conversation with Mike Basil. Let's dive in. You're on the road almost every week. Almost every week. Doing what exactly? So, and uh, right now, it's cut man duties in boxing. That's what I do. During, always, as you know, always before, uh, strength and conditioning was my, my thing. That was my job. That was my, my craft. That was what I wanted to do. And I love doing that. I still do it. I love it. But during the pandemic, and what was really weird, back in... February, March of 2020, I had a, I had a, in, in 2019, I was working in New York, uh, Madison Square Garden. I had Sergei Derevchenko against Triple G. <laughs> Sergei had a massive cut. It was a, I mean, it was a tough night. It was a great fight. Um, many people thought Sergei won, but Triple G got the decision, split decision. Um, I kept him in the fight. I got, I blew up as a cut man. Like that was like a signature night, a signature performance of being able to keep a, uh, at the highest level, a fighter with a terrible cut in the fight, in a competitive fight where he gave him a chance to win. Right. I mean, they talked about, they had my name. It was, it was like really exciting, but I want to strength train. Right. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be a cut man. I don't want to be on the road all the time. That was just a night that happened that was great. So going into March, really February, March, we had opened Aloha, me and my partner, Bruno Escalante, who used to be my fighter too. We opened this gym, San Mateo, and I'm going to, this is my stuff. All my stuff is here. I'm, I'm going to strength train. No needle, no nair. He's going to fight uh, Obali. He's going to fight for the WBC uh, um, Bantamweight title. He's going to hold his camp here. So he starts camp. Chris Algieri, who I'd worked with also, he was in, uh, he had met Nonito at the WBC convention in Mexico. They became friends. He was going to also come for a couple weeks and train. I had been had talking with Tevin Farmer, who was a former world champion, just lost his title to, uh, um, to a fighter. And he was uh, Jojo Diaz. And he wanted to revamp his program and everything. So he was going to come here and check it out too. Check out my training. So I'm on the... Mike, this is happening. Dude, I got freaking three world champions coming to this little Aloha and they're going to train with me. I'm so excited. I think I even contacted you to help me. I was even going to introduce you to them because... Oh, I have, this was going to be the kettlebell work. Remember, I had yeah, tremendous... Yeah. You know, all the work you've done with me. I mean, when I practice what you've tried to teach me <laughs> and then 
I try to practice, but then when I see you do it, I want to quit and never touch it again. <laughs> it's like being, I tell you all the time, it's like being a practicing guitar, you know, and you're like, fuck, I'm down, man. I got it down. And then you go watch a, a guy like freaking Eddie Van Halen or someone on stage and you go, I'm never touching this shit again. I suck. I'm never, I'm not even going to say I even know what this is because I never want to show anybody. It's embarrassing. But, and then March, 2020, what happens? Pandemic shuts the, everything down. World shuts down. Gym is closed. My boxing is closed. No one's having fights. Mm. Two months were shut down. Come in April, March, April, May, top rank, Brad Jacobs calls me. Hey, Mike, we're going to put together a bubble. And, uh, we're, we're, you know, we have a contract with ESPN. The NBA had ESPN. They're starting a bubble. And we're going to have two boxing shows a week, Tuesday, Thursday night. It's going to be NBA and top-ranked boxing, the only two sports that are going to come back on network TV. And they're going to have bubbles. You're going to be tested every week. You got to be sequestered, isolated, the whole thing, right? So he goes, we're talking to Stitch Duran. Your name came up. Would you be willing? You're going to have to be, you know, in the MGM Grand. We have a whole setup bubble. I said, Brad, I am ready, willing, and able. <laughs> when do I leave? I'm ready to go. Because it was scary, man. Everything yeah. was closed. So that opportunity was tremendous for me. And for Stitch as well. Because Stitch, Duran, for those that don't know Jacob Duran, if you Google Cutman, his name pops up. He is the, he is the guy. He is the, the face of what a Cutman is. Hmm. So I'm very privileged to work alongside him. And uh, we actually, on that night, he is in Triple G's corner. And I was in Sergey's corner. And actually, at the end of the fight, I knew Stitch, but not really well. After the fight, he goes, get over here. Give me a hug. We did this in the ring. He goes, that was an amazing job you did, dude. Wow. Give me a hug. Come here. You, my friend, are a cut man. You are a cut man. This has just put you on the map. So it was really cool stuff, right? Everything. And... uh that's how um, this whole transitioned into basically Cutman business. Ever since, I haven't looked back. But how did you, that's amazing, and how did you develop the skills and the technique for that? Because you've played so many roles in boxing. You've been a boxer, a cornerman, a cutman, a strength and conditioning coach. So where did you learn some of those skills, and what was that learning curve like for you? Well, the boxing part was very minimal, and it was very uh, short-lived, and it wasn't, and that was uh, literally how I transitioned into strength and the training part of it was my my boxing coach was Eric the Prince Martin. I had met him. There was a, in the San Francisco Chronicle, every Saturday was an article by Jack Fisk. Jack Fisk on boxing. Hmm. Very, one of the last old school boxing writers there was. Hmm. I'm a tremendous boxing fan. I'm 28, nine years old. Um, I meet him. He writes a little thing. Uh, ESPN was big at the time. Um, they had ESPN champions. Bo ESPN boxing was big with top rank. You know, coming full circle. Very strange, right? So Eric was a, was a champion, ESPN junior welterweight champion. Jack Fisk says, Eric's holding classes at Water Racket. Go. So I go meet him. We talk. We train. I mentioned like, well, yeah, boxing is something I always wanted to try. Well, let's go. 
Golden Gloves is coming up. We'll do it. I'm like, but wait, I don't know what I'm doing. No, we'll do it. It's like fighting's fighting. Don't worry about it. Let's go. Exactly that start. That's how it happened. Even sparring was like, for him, it was like, it's like fighting. You have a fight. You just sparred. You just have a fight. This is not going to be your first fight. Trying to give you that confidence and everything. Well, I didn't do very well in the tournament. Done. And I never really got back with him. Never really, um, I was married at the time. Long story short, she hated it. But I still loved it. And I loved the training we did. It was boxing training, boxing conditioning. Using, I've always worked out, but using the training with boxing as, as like the metaphor. It's like hmm. you can lift, you, can, you have your, um, your competition. You like to compete with lifting. I remember, I think sometime, one time you told me, if it can be lifted, I want to compete at it. <laughs> right? I think you've done that. I think you've competed in every lifting genre or event that can be done, right? Almost, I think you've yeah. almost done it. So that was a thing that you wanted to accomplish. And I was like, wait a minute, this is like, this kind of training transitions and not just boxing, but in life and just being able to get in and out of your car, being able to play with your kids, run around, uh, do stuff that as I was, again, 29 years old. So as people age and people in my age group started aging 35, 40, it was always, well, I can't do that anymore. I'm too old for that shit. Mm. Well, I can't do that. I'm the only guy playing with everyone's kids. I'm the only guy doing all this stuff still. And why? Well, starting to apply those lessons, the conditioning. And then ha I was a cook at the time. That's what I did. I was a, I was, that's what I did for I 17, about that. 17 years. I was a professional cook. Damn. I, this was in 1991. I quit cooking in 98, but I started training in 93. I, it just, whatever, don't need to get into how I transitioned into it, but I made the decision to want to do it. And boxing was the metaphor. Hmm. It was a way that I could put the training together, all the moves that I'd kind of learned, but I also was influenced by other trainers. Put those moves together, and boxing was literally the, I could, at the end of the class, we could do it. I could do that. It's like a Rocky montage all in one <laughs> class. You got the guy doing all the crazy push-ups and he's doing all the running and doing everything, the jump rope and the speed bag. And then he's then the fight and then the movie's over and everyone's like this, right? Well, that was the way I designed the class. We're going to do 45 minutes of all calisthenic core work. Then we're going to go break off in the 30 minutes of jump rope routine. Then we're going to glove up and go 45, 30 more minutes on the bags. And then you finish on such a high, right? It was like this whole journey, each and every class. That's how I originally put it together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it happened where all of a sudden this one fighter, uh, Andre Sosa, he was a busboy in the restaurant that I was working at. And he goes, hey, I'm coming back. I'm a fighter. He goes, I'm coming back. I actually saw you fight in the Golden Gloves in 91, but I want to come back. Would you train me? Yeah. We started training in my backyard. <laughs> Started training, and he and he fought. He fought in the Golden Glove. He didn't win, regardless. But he started that journey. That journey with him started me on working with an actual fighter, not just people who wanted to use boxing as like a mm. I don't even know metaphor for life. I mean, I know that people. I remember Bill Walsh used boxing for the championship 49er teams. He would come in 
to their thing and he would put a video of a, of a fight and utilize that as a lesson for the game that they were going to play. Hmm. And that happened a lot, right? People love boxing. They, they business, they talk about it. It's, you know, we're like, uh, we got to get up off the canvas. We are knocked down, man. We are in the red. <laughs> we are knocked out right now. We got to get our butt up. It, the count of 10 has not been happened yet. We got to fight back, all this stuff. A uh, football player, t- two heavyweight fights. You know, these, these teams are like two heavyweights going at it toe-to-toe. So as it went on, it, just from that, those couple of steps and wanting to do it and c- coming up with an idea of putting and putting that class together, getting popular, getting people that loved it, and, oh, my God, how many years later, some of the same people still take my stuff dude i met you over 18 were, years ago yeah. and your classes were packed. it's it's been um packed. it's been unbelievable and i uh so working with andre first type of fighter that i worked with and then you, you work with another one and then mm-hmm. another one and then i ended up in uh you know going through all this stuff and i remember that uh in working at gladiators gym you know and then actually ended up co-owning it with Eloy Ramirez. Eugene Jackson owned it, and then he left it. He was like, I'm out of this business. But he was one of the original UFC guys. Tim Lasik, another one, right? They were training at that gym. So working with these guys and then starting to work with all them, and then it just started one thing after another after another. I worked with Eugene... In 2005, they legalized MMA in California. Hmm. And that was when Frank Shamrock and Cesar Gracie got in that beef. Hmm. So they headlined the first show in San Jose. The first show, I think it was Strike Force. They with Scott Coker. I think they that was the first show and legal show in in, in California. They were the headliner. Frank knocked out Caesar Gracie. But Caesar was not a fighter. He was a he was a jujitsu instructor he was a black belt in jiu-jitsu his fighters though were jake shields nate diaz no nick way. diaz those were and he said at wow. the end of the fight he goes look i'm not a fighter this got out of hand frank you know i great respect to you this whatever we have is squashed but you ladies and gentlemen you'll be seeing my guys diaz nate nick you'll be seeing jake shields you'll be seeing these guys come up in the in this game these are the real fighters that mm. are creating this MMA thing that went from UFC, you know, ultimate fighting championship to literally UFC, literally an MMA fighter, which wasn't, that didn't exist, right? Didn't exist in the 90s and stuff. It existed in those years, the 2000s and stuff. Started becoming of its own. So I trained Eugene for that event. Trained uh, Tim Lasik, trained um, Eric Ray, who passed away a year later. But... These guys, I was able to work with these guys at Gladiators, so I'm able to implement my training with them. And then boxers too, amateurs, Eloy's amateur fighters, all that stuff. So I didn't know how to do... And what happens is you work, as you know, because you work with fighters. These guys are excellent at what they do. Fighter athlete, one of the most unique athletes on the planet, different than other athletes. But they have vulnerabilities, Mm. they have insecurities, just like anyone else. In there, they they shine. In the boxing ring. But when you do what you do with them, they're vulnerable. Right. They're not confident. 
you can kind of break them if you had, if you could break them, right? They don't have, they're like, God, I'm never going to get this. I'm not strong enough. I'm, man, but wait, coach, wait till you see me in the ring. Then you'll see what I really can do. <laughs> but when they fight, they want you to come because you need that team. Mm. Fighters need that support. And then when they go in the ring, obviously that support, we all step back. They go in. But they need that. So they want you to come. But I was like, what am I gonna, what am I doing here? I'm not really, I don't know how to wrap hands. I don't, I'm not really of value. I'm just but but just by going. So then I started putting in the bucket and the stool to be of value in the corner. I was very fast as a bucket stool guy. <laughs> very quick. I have a video of it, and I'll show you one day. But it's I'm fast, man. So the thing is, they uh but then as it goes on, when Brian Schwartz and Eddie Croft opened Undisputed, I decided to go with them. Remember, we worked wow. for... Uh, I remember that. We worked at Optimal Fitness Center. That's where I met you, Yeah. right? Because I subleased from from Brian Champ. I subleased from him because I left Gladiators. I was moving away. I decided not to move away. I stayed. I needed a place to do my stuff. I subleased from Brian. It didn't... It just it, it had a shelf life didn't work, so Brian Schwartz they opened their place and I asked him, "Do you need a guy?" He said, "Hell yeah!" So I joined them. The thing was, it's a boxing gym, but because this was in two thousand six, hmm. nobody is wanting to box. Everyone wants to do MMA. Everyone's on making money. People don't have have to have any skill, Mike. You just join. I'm off the street. No, I want to fight in the cage. Hell yeah! <laughs> and you're getting a you know a thousand to win, a thousand to show, five hundred to win, five hundred to show. But you're also getting. Hey man, can I put can I put your patch on my my trunks? You pay me. People are like, oh man, you fight in the cage. Can I put my package on your trunks? I'll pay you a thousand. I'll pay you five hundred. I'll pay you seven fifty. So these kids might be making a thousand bucks, but they're making like five thousand in patches. It was just a way to go, right? And it was a fast way to get notoriety and to get on even on TV. So Brian had a great relationship with Scott Coker from Strike Force. We had a young kid. We go to Strike Force. I'm there in the corner. I am just there, right? Fuck, what am I doing? So they have uh, they have cut men. So they, they're rapping our guy. Guy says, hey, man, if there's any problems, don't worry about it. I got you. Launched, when we start going out, that guy's rapping another fighter. I go, hey, man, we're going out to the cage now. You coming? I can't right now. Rules are I got to finish this guy before I come to see you. Well, we're going out to fight, man. What are you doing? What if we, uh, You're our cut man. I'll be there. I'll get there. Luckily, our guy knocked the guy out. Didn't get injured. So we, after that, Brian said, look, I go, dude, we're never getting caught like this again. I'm never coming to these freaking fights again and being useless. Mm. So I started learning how to wrap hands. I started applying cut men skills, learning how to do it. And it just started from there. Again, little steps of how I started strength and conditioning, little steps how I started working with the fighter. Again, Little steps, years into it. This is how I started the rapping, cut man, that kind of skill. 2007, I think they, I became like a cut man, cut man in my mind, right? I didn't, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the cut man, 
right? I'm going to wrap you. I'm going to do this. But not really being able to work a lot of skills as we, you know, just doing it, trying, trying to get it here and there. Did a lot of MMA, amateur MMA, because they, they uh, camel, California amateur MMA, and they, they don't wear headgear in MMA, but they, so they hired cut men to different shows. It's amateur. The kids aren't even getting paid. But the, I, sometimes I make no money. Sometimes the promoter pay me a hundred bucks. Sometimes I'm rapping the whole show wow. because all these guys didn't know how to rap. So I'm rapping everybody. So I got to apply my skills and learn. Nastiest cuts I've ever been involved in were on those shows. Now, for someone who's, let's say, not in boxing or not maybe uh, doesn't follow boxing and doesn't really understand the importance of wrapping hands and a cut man, can you just explain the significance? I mean, those who are in it for sure can appreciate yeah, it. I mean, it. it's a make or break thing. So can you share like how important that role is to wrap and to be a cut man? Wrapping is huge. These are their weapons, right? So these are, these are the main things. And you want to protect the bones, there's carpal bones, there's tendons, ligaments. Protect them. The gloves itself protects the hand, but then you wrap to give it extra security. Um, and it's, an, it's, a, it's really, if, you, if I throw my hand, my naked hand on a bag like that, and it's slow motioned, you'll see the impact. From, you see the impact, mm -hmm. but if you see it in slow motion, you see all these bones move. Wow. Like mm -hmm. a ripple, like an ocean. It goes like that. Well, those are all vulnerable things. I can hit the bag, place my punches on a bag, but when we hit each other, a human body with bones, man, you can hit a bag for 10 rounds, three weeks, and feel good. You go three rounds, four rounds, six rounds, hitting a person, and your hands are sore. Interesting. Because of the different uh, surface, different shocks, the bone. Bone is really dense in the forehead, Right. So a lot of guys break their hands. Like if you're ever in a bar fight and a dude's coming at you with like his head like that, just back off because that dude's trying to break your hand. He's going to wait till you throw and he's going to go like Moving that. Moving into the punch with he's that gonna, forehead. He's, he knows he can break your hand and then oh, you're, sure. you're screwed. But the thing is when you, um, so hand, the wrapping is very important. It's also very important to, uh, for the confidence of the fighter. Let's say a fighter's going to fight a 12-round fight. Well, they might spar. 120 rounds preparing for that fight. So that's a lot of ways to hurt your hands. So in a fight, um, in a, you wear either eight ounce, if you're 47 down, or 48 up, it's a 10 ounce glove. 47 in terms of- One uh, weight class. One, 147 yeah. down Pounds. is eight ounce gloves down. And then 48, 148 up is 10 ounce. Cool. But that's not a lot. And uh, in sparring and stuff, you wear 16 ounce. Some guys want to wear 14s or lighter because they like to knock people out. But really, that's stupid. The whole purpose of the glove is to protect your hands. The whole purpose of headgear, yes, to protect from cut and abrasion and bruising, but it's to protect your hands. Hmm. You can get knocked out with headgear just like you can without headgear. People say, well, there's going to be more knockout. I'm going to, I'm going to hit you harder if you wear headgear because I want to hurt you. No. A dumb. No, oh, you don't even have to hit me hard to knock me out. You time it right. You hit my chin. My brain hits the inside of my skull, turns that little switch off. My knee goes one way. I'm out. 
And I only have to be out for 10 seconds. 10 seconds, that's it. I'm done. It's over. I could wake up at 9 or 11 and go, I'm fine. <laughs> well, 10 seconds, you weren't fine. And that's all it took, right? So then a cut man, again, so now that we're thinking about wrapping the hands to protect the hands, wearing the gloves, right? 16-ounce gloves and sparring because you you're sparring 10 times the rounds that you're actually going to compete in. And again, when you go to the eights or tens, you can break your hand, hurt your hand if you're not properly wrapped, if you don't have a proper glove. Because now you're not hitting someone with headgear. In professional ranks, they have no headgear. Even in most amateur fights now, no headgear. And then you have this bone here. You can break the hands easy. And then also, headgear helps with cuts. Well, with now you have no headgear in a professional fight, smaller gloves, you have the ability to cut. So now, that's where my role comes in. A cut man means nothing, nothing, if a fighter don't fight. Mm. My job is, what's a cut man if a fighter doesn't fight? I'm, I'm only, my job exists to keep a fighter one more round, as Stitch's company would say, one more round. Mm. One more round. Hey, this is a competitive fight. Sergey fought Triple G. This is a competitive fight. It would, let's not have this fight stop because of the blood. We, if I didn't control it, if it was a mask of blood, they would have stopped the fight. And then that great fight wouldn't have existed. So you keep the guy in the fight. You keep him going. Swelling. Multiple ways of swelling can happen. Swelling can happen from a punch, from a thumb. Like an around, eye poke or something uh, like yeah, that? around the orbital. Sometimes the thumb gets in. It can, it can, be, it can be, you know, shut. It can be cut, all that, um, bleeding. And then you can do a, um, it, but it also be from a headbutt. It can be from an elbow. If that happens, there's bruising. It's a deeper wound and it can close your eye. Hmm. Then you have to deal with swelling on top of the cut. That's another whole issue. But nose bleeds. A nosebleed just from maybe some tissue that's damaged from sparring, uh, maybe a broken nose that has a little protruding bone in there. It gets cut again. That's controllable. But the broken nose with that deep red blood coming out, that's another hard issue. That's another problem. Interesting. Uh, now, are there, I'm curious, especially in, in, in the fight, is there one particular fight? I know you, I mean, you've done probably, I don't even know, at this point, thousands of fights. Is there one fight that either stands out to you as one that you're either maybe the most proud of or like one that really stands out as something special? I know that's hard to say because you've literally worked at every level and the highest level many times. Which one are you maybe uh, um, one of your most proud fights? You know, it, it's, it's hard. It is hard to pick those things. I mean, obviously, the Sergey fight was a great fight. We didn't win. So that makes you a little like, oh, he didn't pull, he didn't be able to get the victory. So it's not the full circle, sweet mm. victory. Um, there's just, a, there's, I would say there's more of instances. Mm. The biggest thing is when you are, I'll tell you this. I had a kid last Saturday, Eric Tudor, who fought. Um, he fought in a Golden Boy show. My first fight with him was the fight before that. He's a Golden Boy fighter. He was a step-up fight, dangerous guy. He gets cut. I think it was from a headbutt or something, but he gets cut in like the second round. <laughs> well, it's a nasty little cut. It's right over here going into his eye. But the guy attacked the fighter. 
he came out like, hell no, I ain't getting stopped. He, he, and then he ended up having, it went the distance, but he ended up having a great performance. At the end of the fight, Eric goes, oh man, you, uh, thank you so much. My, you saved me. You saved me in that fight. And I go, Eric, I did not save you. He goes, what you mean? I go, you did it, bro. You reacted unbelievably. You got cut. You didn't freak out. You actually stepped your fight, your game up. You said you made the decision when you saw that blood, you felt that blood. You made the decision. No, I'm going to make, I'm going to, it's going to be on me. They're not going to stop this. I'm going to stop him. And you were able to win the fight. You, you fought very well. You allowed me to control the cut. You didn't get hit in that cut anymore. So you, 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 had, you used your defense to also not get hit with that. Because that's what happens. That fighter, his fighter was smart. The opponent, he was throwing jabs at that cut to try to open it up. So that is proud to me because it's like, I don't do it on my own. I do it with the fighter himself or herself. It, it's a relationship that I had never worked with him before, but he trusted me hmm. when he got cut. He allowed me to work. He allowed me to help him, but he also helped himself. And that's, that to me is, I'm very proud of that. And uh, because it's like a part of the journey, you know, it's a part of like, now I'm a part of that kid's career. <laughs> and it's like, wow. It, and it, it's happened before with when guys get hurt. I remember I had Joette Gonzalez when he fought um, uh, Navarrete. And geez, he got, his eye was swollen and he was cut. And I was glad he was actually cut underneath because I was controlling so his eye wouldn't shut. And I was putting the pressure here and it was bleeding, which was releasing some of the swelling. Uh -huh. And it would swell up again after he, you know, but he was, in a, he was in a war. But because I was able to control his eye, it didn't close. The doctors let the fight continue. Again, he didn't win the decision, but he made it the whole round, all 12. It was a great fight. And he was so appreciative after. But again, I went to, he said, you saved me. He gave me like a bonus. But he was like, but I go, Joette, no, man, you, this is you, not me. You allowed me to do my job. Your father, your corner allowed me to work. But you as a fighter, you're the one. I'm, I'm only there to help give you the best chance to, to, for you to win. Hmm. That's it. You, you're the one performing. I'm just helping, you know, just, and that's, that helps a lot because I knew early when I was working in the MMA and I was, I was working with that guys and there were different cut men around. I remember this one cut man, this kid was nervous, man. And this cut man goes, Hey kid, don't worry about it. If you bleed, I'll just stare at it and it'll stop. <laughs> and I'm like, what? I was even like, dude, that's a bunch of bull crap, man. What are you talking about? This kid's nervous, man. You don't even need to bring it up. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to stop it no matter what. You know, it was like that was what when, when Brian, we had that, the kid in MMA, when I didn't know how to do cuts and I didn't know how to wrap hands and the fighter was wrapping him, the cut man was saying, hey, he's wrapping his hands. He's going, hey, if I, if I get in the cage with you, don't panic. I have a lot of experience. I'm going to be able to control your cuts. I'm going to be able to control it. Do not worry about it. I never say shit like that. Mm. I don't do it. I'm not going to say I'm going to stop your cut. 
I'm not going to say, don't worry, kid. I got you. I'm the best in the business. I don't do that because, number one, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to work. Do you think that gives them a false sense of security? And I if, think it, if it happens and it isn't able to stop? It just brings up the worst case scenario. It's like, you know, in the gym, you talk about knockdowns. Talk about getting knocked down. Mike, if you get dropped, you talk about it in the gym. Practice it in the gym. Not in the dressing room going out to the fight. Mm. The referee will say things like that. He'll say, when they give instructions, they say, if, you're, if your opponent, they always do the same thing. If your opponent is knocked down, I want you to go to the neutral corner. Da, da, da. And then they, but they say the opponent first. If you are, not that you will be, they say that sometimes, but they say, if you are, I want you to pay attention to me. Don't look it around. Don't do nothing. You pay attention to what I say, my instructions. But we also talk about that in the gym because it's very important to be aware of that. You get dropped and you've never been dropped. You might immediately get embarrassed or look over at us. Mm -hmm. And the natural reaction to the corner is to go, Mike, 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 now listen. And, and he's looking at me. You're looking at me and the ref's going, eight, nine. Shit. And you're going, what, what? He said, dude, you know, we're paying attention to me. And you got to convince that ref that you're okay. Even if you stand up, are you okay? Step to the left, step to the right. Whatever instructions they've pre kind of told you they would give you. Sometimes they just want your hands up and move, step to, towards me. To move sometimes is a, even if, because you, if you're off, you're, you're hurt. You're, you're, you're like dizzy almost. You might make a misstep stepping. Hopefully the referee doesn't call it because maybe you stumbled taking a step. That's why the, a good referee will say, step to the left. Oops, he stumbled. Now step to the right. Now step to me. You know, they'll, they'll move it a little bit. Okay, he's okay. Or, he, or he's good enough to continue. You know, because it, it takes experience. It's um, in all aspects of the game, it takes a lot of experience to, uh, to get better. But you have to make a commitment to yourself to get better. Hmm. Uh, our manager, Herb Stone, he's put pictures up in our gym. He's our guy. He was Bruno's manager. Um, he was just a great mentor. And he told us, I remember when uh, Bruno, Andy Vences, Jonathan Chicas, Tony Johnson, he had all of us, right? And he was like, he had us down, sitting us down. He said, hey, the fights are going to get tougher now. Now we're moving up in competition. All the guys got to get better. The fighters have to improve. Mm -hmm. But so do you. You have to improve too. And I took it to heart. I have to get better too. I can't be the same. Mm -hmm. I can't just say, well, I, gosh, Mike, I have all this experience. I'm good. I'm good. Mike, you got me. I'm good. I learned something new. And I'm, I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. I literally learned something new every single fight I work. There's something that happens that didn't happen to me before. Whether it's with the commission, whether it's with the ring, whether it's with um, an, one of the persons that's in the corner, the fight itself, there's always something. So those are the most memorable moments, honestly, because each one is a lesson. And every time I do make a mistake, my promise to myself is to never make that same mistake again. Take the steps to avoid that, to be aware of it, 
And always, always, as Herb Stone would say, I'll always do what's in the best interest of my fighter. And that's a mantra that I have on my jacket that I carry. I have it written out on me. And it's Herb Stone on the bottom of it because that's the best, that's what we do. I'm here for the best interest of the fighter. I'm not in for the best interest of me. That's why if there's a bad cut and I'm able to control it, it doesn't defer to me as you took it from the one yard line in, man. You scored the touchdown, Basil. You did it. No, you did it. I was just there doing what I'm supposed to do. And that's super cool because that really empowers the fighter. It does. And it one, it shows really where your intentions lie. It shows the power of the team. It shows how you empower the fighters and they can really develop that inner resilience and inner confidence to where, for example, um, you know, I imagine there's just a lot of pressure on fighters. There's so much. I mean, you've got how many weeks or months of training, and I've seen some of the training camps that you guys have been a part of. And I mean, there's just so much that happens behind the scene for just, you know, a one night or a few hours or however long, you know, an event is. So there's just a lot of pressure on these guys' shoulders, especially as they're coming up and there's probably not much money or oftentimes there isn't much money involved. And so, and even when there is, that's a whole nother added level of pressure. Uh, so that's, that's an incredible viewpoint. And also there's so many parallels into daily life. I mean, that, that, that perspective, I mean, we can apply to being a lifelong student when it's one of the reasons why you and I have, I think, so much respect for each other is because we are continual students of our crafts. And in that way, we learn from each other and we learn from every single situation that's presented and all of the numerous factors that are touching that situation. One of the things I'm really curious about is in the fights that you've witnessed or supported or at any level, whether it's a cut man, a quarter man, is there a general theme or something that you've seen when a fighter's down or when a fighter gets seriously cut or when some moment of ex- gets knocked down three times in a, in a round, when there is maybe a moment of doubt in the fighter or something challenging comes up, is there something that you've seen across fighters that like, what allows someone to rise to an occasion and what contributes to someone getting destroyed or deflated and not able to push on? Um, Think about this a lot. We talk about it a lot. It's different for everyone. There isn't really, I could never really pinpoint a thing, not a thing, but being in the bubble, being able to work like we would have two shows a week, nine fights, 10 fights, working all of them, working with trainers and fighters I've never worked with before, wrapping their hands, guys I've never worked, wrapping them for the first time. The fascinating thing was being in those moments and witnessing those moments between trainer and fighter. Hmm. When there was that, kid, do you really want this? Hmm. You got you, Now's the time. You got to step up. How did they communicate that? Each one different. Some guys were motivators. Some trainers were not motivators. Sometimes the fighter had to motivate himself. And then when guys were down, there was a great, um, well, I'll say this. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was a fight where I was actually with Donaire 
Tonaire was the coach. And uh, we were with uh, a fighter. And uh, we were, we, it wasn't going good for us. It was not a good fight. It was not going good. And our fighter was getting cut. He had multiple cuts. Each round he had a new cut, bleeding more. And uh, it was just a tough fight. It, and uh, we were, it was a situation where Donaire was like, he, he goes, hey man, what's that? What, what do you think? I go, he goes, the father, father was in the corner with us. He said, the father wants me to stop it. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, you're the trainer. Go in there. You tell him, I'm stopping this fight if I see this happen, give him that opportunity to show you. Wow. It wasn't that the fighter couldn't, it wasn't that he didn't want to do it. He just, at that time, he couldn't anymore. He, had, he, he was done. He was done. So then the fight was stopped. The referee actually stopped the fight. So, but we were going to stop it. Or no, Donaire stopped it. He did stop it. And it was a situation where but it wasn't that the fighter didn't want to do it. It was just, he, he gave him that opportunity to do it. Told him, we're stopping it if you can't do it. Give him that one more round, even though you can't do it for him. But you, you think, because in boxing, what's the real, um, what attracts people, I think, is in other sports, there's three periods, nine innings, four quarters. They have to be completed. You can be 48 to nothing in a football game, but you got to go all four quarters. Mm. There's no way out of it, man. You're like, buddy, this sucks, man. We can't get out of it. We got to finish this game. We're getting, we can't win. We can't gain a yard. We're terrible, right? But in boxing, you can literally have your ass handed to you every, each and every round, and it takes one punch the right way. And it's over. You just pulled it off. <laughs> Shit. There's always that. There's always that. And it's like, you know, and our guy can punch. Oh, it's a very crazy decision. Do we, but if we take that or stop him, he doesn't have that last opportunity to, but he was damaged. He was cut every round, getting worse every round. So that, that was, that's an instance, right? So there's other instances where I, it just fascinates me where um, I talk about this a lot. There's a journey in a training camp. Each, each and every step, like you, you start the training camp, you start your conditioning, let's say two weeks. Let's say an eight-week camp. You start your conditioning, da-da-da. The third week, you start your sparring. You might spar low rounds, four to six rounds, two twice a week. But you're starting to get your distance, your timing. You're getting used to that contact. Because like I said, your hands are your weapon. Mm. So you're touching mitts, you're touching bag. Now you're touching a human. I can touch the mitts in the bag and not have any problems. But once I start sparring, that's where the thumb gets tweaked, the wrist gets tweaked. You get a bruise on your knuckle. All these things happen because you're hitting a person with bone. It's different now. That's why you want that heavily padded headgear. You don't want a lightly padded headgear. I still don't want to feel your bone in my knuckle. I want to bounce off that heavy padded headgear. I want to, I'm practicing, I'm training, I'm not fighting you. You're a sparring partner helping me prepare for a particular fight. Then the fourth week, you, the sparring goes up. You know, you have your strength and conditioning or whatever on top of that. So you have days where you're, dude, I just, I got to spar on Wednesday. But damn, I sparred on Monday. 
eight rounds. I did my conditioning on Tuesday. I'm sore. I'm tired. Shit. And now I got to spar today and I don't want to. Well, and not only that, Mike, but you got to spar. I got this young kid coming in. <laughs> Who's hungry. This kid's really good. This is like a green light day. This is like a, like a hell of a good sparring day. We need this. I can't. He's not going to come back. Right? We need it. So you're like, oh, man, I don't feel like it. So you got to dig deep. Dig in. But that, di- that well, that well's a mystery. And it's, it's, it's individual and unique to each and every fighter, athlete, human, human being. What's in that well? That's one of those days that you put that something in that well because you did it. You overcame it. Training gets tougher. You peak your training. Then you start to taper. The real taper part is the weight cut, the interviews on fight week, distractions. Maybe you trained in California but you're fighting in England. Dude, nine hour difference. Whole big, whole enough half of the world difference. Or maybe just the East Coast, three hour difference. Different schedule now. Everything changes stuff, right? Depending on the magnitude of the fight, interviews, uh, appearances, uh, um, the uh, press conferences. You face your opponent for the first time in eight weeks. And you gotta, you know, that that's starting to happen. You know, you're getting that feeling. Then... The weight cut. So let's say a 160-pound fighter, every organizing body concedes that we can, fight, we can gain 10% and compete. Where no one's going to write you a letter, no one's going to say you have to move up, no one's going to say you're, you're uh, you know, oh my God, this guy weighed 20 pounds more than 160, that's bullshit. This guy's coming in too big. 176 pounds, right? You can be 10% above. Hmm. That's really a middleweight fight weight. It's not 160. 160 is just what you step on the scale with. So you got to get to 160 though. So your fight weight, your training weight should be, if you're a middleweight, around 74, 76, 77. Because you're fully hydrated every day. You want to eat properly. You got to feed that body. You got to prepare that tissue damage. You can't be emaciating yourself in no way, shape, or form from 170 down, should you be sparring, hitting a bag, running, any of that shit? Because you're never going to perform at that weight. Mm. You're going to perform at 74, 75, 76. You're never going to perform at 160. You just need to be on the scale at that weight. That's it. What's the duration between typically between the weigh-in and the fight? How much time do they have? In a championship fight, it could be anywhere from 24 to 36 hours. 24 to 36 and yeah. you know what's interesting is like you were, I think the, yeah, you were the first person I was telling uh, Lauren, my wife about this. I mean, we go back in so many different ways yeah. and capacities, but you were the one who really educated me on how to do a weight cut safely. Yeah. And, and really the detriments, I mean, weight cuts in so many sports like kill you. And I remember all the little things that you supported me with and like how scientific you guys do it to have the least detriment on the fighter. Um, and so on the fighter, that whatever the competitor, whatever the sport is that the weight cut has. So you're saying, so if someone's fighting at 160, 10% of that would be 16 pounds, so 176. They should be around that, yeah. They should be around that, okay. And, and that's good because so, and the thing is, so from, I can get you, because you're drinking water, gallon, gallon and a half a day, let's say throughout the day, not in one sitting, right? You drink it throughout the day. It's just stay super hydrated. Um, 
10 pounds of water, basically, right? Every day. Lose four to five in training, put it back on. So as you, the taper week, no, I do not, we're not sparring. We're not doing any heavy wow. conditioning. Hmm. Seven days from the fight, we're not doing any of that anymore. So there's no, I don't need to feed you the same caloric intake that you were taking to train twice a day. So we start limiting that, reducing that, reducing carbo, uh, sugars, no, like no sugars, like no, uh, the salts, sodiums. Things that retain water. That out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Start to kind of reduce that stuff slowly. Typically, it's a pound a day. They drop. So say after the last sparring, then we stop that stuff. They sparring was on a Friday, right? So by Saturday, by Sunday, the guy, instead of weighing 174 to 76, they might start weighing 73, 72. Then Monday, 71. Tuesday, 70. Wednesday, we're still training, but everything's more lighter, more more shadow boxing and maybe mitt work, whatever we're doing is more game plan oriented. Okay. Right? To where now, I'm not trying to strengthen you. I'm trying to keep your IQ sharp. Sharpen you. This is our scenarios of the fight. We're running through that physically. We're, we're rehearsing. You know, we're rehearsing everything. Might not go to plan in the fight, but we're rehearsing what we want to do. Right? Different things. So, in, and then even in that, while you're thinking about the fight, the mental part of it, you, you, you're getting, they, I see it all the time. They get in that fight mode where this is real now. I love, this is what I want. I don't, I no longer have to do a bunch of ab work to have my six pack. I got it right now. <laughs> I got, I'm feeling good. I can shadow box 10 rounds. I'm not winded. I'm thinking about the game plan. I'm not doing heavy bag drills where you're destroying me so I condition my shoulders. That's all over with. I feel great. I'm 100% regardless. Sometimes they're injured, but I'm 100%. Now it's all about game plan, utilizing that beautiful body that we've trained to perform on that night. So each time you lose a little more, let's say you get to be 68, 67, by the time we have to make that deep cut to go to 60, all water. Float it off. Do the bath training, usually, right? Let's float it off. Well, from 68, 7 to 64, 63, it's not bad. But that 62, 63 to 60 is deep. Mm. That's the deep cut. That's another mental, but that's another something you put in that well. Mm. That experience each and every fight I tell them all, I say, because sometimes they go, man, I can't. I say, listen, this is your well. You're putting another something mystery in that mystery pit. Because in the fight, when it's, you're buzzed. You all right? I need you to get, I need you to jab this round. I need you to be alert. I need, you're dropping your hands. You're holding yourself still. I need you to move. Hey, dude, I need you to dig deep. Hmm. What are you digging out? I don't know what's in there. You know. I'm going to dig deep. Those experiences, the hard days in training, the days in training where you got your butt whipped, but you came back the next day. I'm the A-side fighter. I'm the champion. I just got my ass kicked in sparring. I'm going to freaking defend my title or I'm going to fight for a world title. And I just got my ass kicked. You got to come back tomorrow. Right? With confidence, with that whole forget that shit or, or learn from it. That deep cut 
Weight cut, deep well. Those are the things that are inside you. What are you fighting for? Is it your country? Is it your better food for your family? A better home? Uh, your children are going to be there. Why? You know, all of these things. Those It's different for everyone. But those experiences are what you're going to call upon. So in the fight, it could even be something where you say, you say something in their ear about that. Hey, man, you worked way too hard to give up now. What did we just go through? Hmm. What were you doing when you questioned yourself during that weight cut? Right? You made it, baby. You made it. You're here. You're beautiful. You just made a mistake. Let's get, come on, get that out of your head. Let's go. You can do this. You've done it time and time again. You've come back from getting your butt whooped in training. You can come back from in this fight right now. So you, that's what you pull out. And it's a mystery. I call it a mystery spot. And it really is. I don't, it's different for everyone. But in that training camp, knowing these people, you start, as they start, you say, hey man, that's one for the well. <laughs> and you go, what are you talking about? That's one for the well. This day is for the well. This experience is for the well. And they say, what? I say, wait, wait till we in the corner. We're going to need you to dig out that. We're going to need you to dig deep. And that's what you're going to dig out. And I remember Sugar Ray Leonard. I'm a huge fan of Sugar Ray Leonard. And he said what separated him, he felt, from other fighters. Hmm. And the reason he was, because he would go down. I mean, there's great quarterbacks, right? Tom Brady, Joe Montana. But what are they famous for? Comebacks. Hmm. But what happens when you have to come back? You're freaking losing. Then you come back. It's not like you're winning 48 to nothing every fight, every game. You're actually losing and you come back, right? So it's like one of those situations where it's like uh, uh, when, you're, when you're down, you know, you, 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 you find, that, find that thing. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that. And before we hopped on today, you and I were having a really brief discussion. I kind of like, I think I cut it short because I wanted to pick your brain right now. When someone loses, uh, whether we're going to use boxing as a context, but this is going to have parallels, I know, to, to other aspects of life. But oftentimes when we lose, the common strategy or the common phrase is we got to go back to the drawing board. We got to tear everything down and rebuild back up. And you just had a fight. I think it was recently where this came up. What's your perspective on how do you know when you need to maybe start from a new foundation and tear things down and go back to the drawing board or what's another strategy or what's another option that someone could take with that? Well, for me, like in in the experience recently, um, you get back in. Mm-hmm. You don't need to re. You gotta. You gotta revamp. I mean, you. Yeah. There's. There's always going to be something you could do better, especially if someone figured you out or beat you. Sometimes the better man just wins, mm-hmm. right? And it isn't something that you haven't prepared right for. But there are times you you need to prepare. You you didn't prepare properly. You didn't weight cut right. You overtrained yourself. You maybe you. Uh, you didn't get the proper sparring. A lot of, a lot of times, the guys want to kill each other in sparring. I don't do anything for you. Hmm. I don't do shit for you. You, you got to work on your skills. The greatest thing ever is, I feel, the fighters that really go to that next level are the ones that can make adjustments in the fight. They can redirect it. In the fight. In the round. 
they can redirect it and change it. Things ain't going their way, they can change it. So if someone loses, a lot of times they want to change everything. Change the team Get the or coach. change yeah, yeah. this. But it, it's sometimes it's not that. It's not that. It's just you've done things. I always say you've done you you're taking care of the physical. You're you're doing the training. You're doing the running, the push-ups, the setups. You're doing all that. You're doing the sparring. You're coming in and you're you're hitting the bag, the rounds the coach wants you to hit. You're doing the mitts with the coach, but you're not really working. You're sparring, right? You're you're whooping on guys, but you're not building that IQ. You're not you're not l- looking at what the whys and you know because that's the biggest thing is the IQ part. It, the physical can be beaten. It can be beaten from just a guy better than you. But there's instances in great fights where the guys were better than them, but the great fighters overcame them. And when you say IQ, are you talking more actually like strategy within how to make that adjustment, that adaption or adaptation? Or is there other things that... That and and the why. The why they're there. The why. Why am I... You know, for the strength training especially, I just don't crush everybody. I explain it. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. This actually, this is why this transitions into this in the ring. Mm-hmm. This movement we're doing here transitions to that move in the ring. The reason you're doing this, you're throwing your, we do a lot of stuff on the balls of the feet, right? Toes. Um, use the heel, use the edge of the foot, different portions of the feet. But if I'm on the ball of the foot for a certain movement, when we're throwing the punch, I want that ball contacted to the ground when you turn your hip you don't turn your foot when you roll up on your toes you but here's the a conditioning tool that we're doing to help you so when we're doing this throwing the right throwing the right don't roll on your toe remember that move we did remember that drill that's to do this that's to condition that so you're on the ball of your foot and you turn your hip you don't roll your foot you don't turn your foot hmm. If you turn your foot, everyone turns their feet. You can turn your foot to get more distance or length on your hand. But if you turn your foot, you roll on your toes. Where's the contact on the ground? Mm. Where's that energy from the foot to the, to the, through the leg to the hip? And then turn that hip. Plant, turn that hip. Finish with that shot. Boom! Drive that punch, right? Mm. If you roll, it's just, it's just a extension. It's just a throw. There's nothing on it. So... I mean, that kind of stuff. Why you're doing what you're doing. So when you need that punch, hey man, you're done. You're losing. You need that miracle shot, (laughs) right? It's not just throwing it blind. It's literally maybe I got one shot at this. This dude's giving it to me, but he's been beating the crap out of me. But I got one shot. Here it comes. He's dropping that hand again. Oh my God. I just (laughs) fucking did it. It worked. Remember uh, the great four-fight series between Juan Manuel Marquez and Pacquiao? Mm. When Juan Manuel Marquez threw, Marquez threw that right hand, that, that freaking right-hand shot over Pacquiao, he threw that thing for four fights. He finally landed it in the fourth one and knocked him out cold. But it took him four fights and losses and getting himself dropped a bunch of times and cut before he finally landed it. And did he keep his team during that whole process? Or did he, he had see? the same guys, I think. He still wow. had the same guys. Pacquiao did too. But a lot of guys change it. Like look at Ryan Garcia, for example. You know, three different trainers. 
uh, even the great, uh, and, and I believe his career was one of the best careers ever, was Oscar De La Hoya. He changes trainers all the time, you know? I think he landed on the Floyd Sr., Mayweather Sr. He, I think he feels that was his best coach, that or the one he had the most success with or relationship with. He, he, I think he wished he would have had him his whole career. <laughs> Gave him a lot of respect, you know? But, uh, yeah, man, people change and they switch and... It's not the team. It's sometimes it's... I mean, we only do so much. We're here to support. And really keep, in my opinion, keep the team small. Hmm. Why is that? Because it's it, you're the fighter. You're the fighter. You're doing this by yourself. What do you need 20 people for? That's a lot of checks you're writing. <laughs> you know? That's a lot of, lot of people that... And they're not going to be there when you lose. Hmm. That's another thing. You're going to lose. These people will jump off the train. You're going to be looking around. Well, where's the guy that held my Gucci bag? <laughs> well, wait a minute. That's my masseuse. She's not here no more. She's busy now? But my, my back is sore. But wait a minute. You're busy now? You can't come to my house now? And No, that, that's over, you know? We're going to the winners. That's very real in all aspects of life, I think. People... So you keep your, keep, I believe, just keep your circle small, man. Mm. People, because we're there for you. Fighter sometimes doesn't understand. I'm here with you. I could be making money at my gym. There's people that need me here. I'm here with you. This trainer's here with you. We're here with you. You know, you might be leaving your family. Mike, you come on the road with a fighter. Your wife and kid is at yeah. home. You're not with them. That's a sacrifice. You don't need to be treated like garbage. You don't need to be second-guessed. No, I'm here. Now, if we failed, we failed together. Hmm. If you aren't in, a, in condition, if you, if you falter, that's my fault. I don't put that blame on just the fighter. I, that's my blame too. Let's revamp. We can correct mistakes that we've made together. We can't correct him if you go to someone else. He might make the same mistakes, just in a different language, right? But making the same mistakes. So, you know, stick with it. And you know when it's not right. You know when someone's there just for the money. You know when someone's there just for their notoriety. I'm working with Mike Salemi. I'm... I'm Salemi's cup man. <laughs> I got the gig. Not you fools. I got the gig, right? That's, you know, when you when you see me like that, you know, hey, dude, this guy's not. He's not there for the nah, right No, he's reasons. not for me. He's not here for me. He's here for who I am or, you know, that kind of thing. And that's why I always go back to if, you know, all my approach to everything is like, hey, man, I'm, when I'm working with a fighter, we're working together. It's not me that saved you. You saved yourself. I just was there. I'm an assist. And that's why I look at even my strength training. I'm not an addition to the fighter's training. I'm an assist to what the fighter has to accomplish in the ring to be able to perform in the ring. I'm just an assist. I might be minimal. I might have a lot more role based on what I know, right, over the years. 
I think that's super important because having been, you know, an athlete for, for many years and, and competing, that was something that as the athlete, I really felt when I've had, I've had multiple, you know, coaches over the years, like many, you know, athletes have. And it was something like I knew exactly how I wanted and liked to be treated. And I've also known the situations when, um, a coach made it very clear that it was him who was responsible for the win or whatever. And I told myself, and there's a few, I won't mention names, but I just remember, like I always said, like when I coach or when I coach, I will never be that guy yeah. because it's, it's also true that it's them doing it. They're in the ring. They're on the platform. They're the That's one. Absolutely. <laughs> this thing doesn't happen without them stepping into that exactly. ring. And so that is the most important thing. And we're just there to help with, obviously with the right intentions and with our skills. Yeah. But this whole show doesn't happen if they don't step in the ring. Like you were saying, a cut man doesn't have a job if there's no fighter. A it doctor doesn't, doesn't A doctor doesn't have a job if there's no patient. Absolutely. So that's why I think it's really important. Yes, coaches and all the people on the team are absolutely important. And also they do not have a role, responsibility, a duty if there is no fighter there. So I think it's, and I've just been in that position on more than one occasion. I just remember I was like, this just doesn't feel right. And so when I'm in that position as the coach or the facilitator or the guy, whatever it is that my role is supposed to be, I'm going to do that role and also do so from a place of acknowledging what is real and what is true. And it is that person's journey. It is that person's dream. I may be one part of it, but I'm a small part. And that is to me what, what humble and real leadership is, is supporting them to step into, into their lives and their goals and their dreams. Um, yeah, man. So you're on the road continuously. Yes. Uh, this has been amazing. And as we close this out, uh, I'd love just for you, what are you most excited for now or what's next for you? Is it continuing the role as a cut man or what's kind of, uh, what's in the works now for you? I've been back in the gym a little more. So yeah. Because of COVID, I don't, we don't have to go for the full week anymore. So you can literally go for, like, I got a fight now in Vegas on Friday, and I got another one in Vegas on Saturday, <laughs> where before it was like, you know, even if it, like, say the fight was in LA on Friday, I could fly to, I could do LA and then fly to Vegas for Saturday's fight. Where in COVID, we couldn't do it. So I would be gone for big chunks of time. But now I'm back in the gym. I'm doing the training now for the fighters from, 10.30 to 12 every day. Um, I got a lot of young fighters in there. TJ Curry's coming twice a week. Yeah. I've got him back in the gym. We're just working on stuff, and he helps me a lot too. Stuff that you guys have worked together, he's helped me work with the guys with that stuff too hmm. because you've developed him so well with the, well, a lot of it. And and we, um, and we uh, so I'm excited about that. And I'm excited to go I want to be involved in more training camp. I want to, I want to try to introduce that conditioning role again, that SNC role to fighters. But also, I do a lot more. I do mitt work and I do coach boxing, you know, and I do have all those other skills to wrap in the hands and everything. And I, um, that's how, like, when I'm working with Stitch Duran, Stitch comes from a marketing background. Again, you Google Cutman. Is Jacob Stitch Duran. He shows up. Stitch, right? He doesn't stitch. It's just a nickname he got, right? He don't know how to stitch a cut. But he said, ah, you got to get a nickname. 
you got to get a nickname. And I'm like, nah, man, I'm never going to do that. I don't want to do that, right? <laughs> so like in everything, the Basil strength came about because literally back in the undisputed days, training those guys during the same time, 10 to 12, oh man, I'm working with fighters, you know, just they're not paying me. They don't have no money, but I'm, I'm showing what I know. And it's, it's a laboratory. I can practice stuff. I can try things that I've been thinking about, work on stuff you showed me. We, we introduced me to the battle ropes. I had 10 freaking battle ropes working with those guys, man. It was awesome. So we doing all these things and the guys would say, oh man, I got a fight coming up. I got to get my basal strength on. Oh, I got a fight coming up. I got to do this. So they, it, it came a name. So in when I started working with uh, Chris Algieri, he's good fighter. He's, he might be retired. I'm not sure yet. We might, we don't know. But he's a former world champion and he has a cookbook out. He has a book on So You Want to Be a Fighter. He's got, he's an author, everything, right? I think he teaches class too in Florida. He's a in a in a college so he has a course so he's like a very renaissance guy so we are i'm helping him in his comeback we're i'm wrapping his hands we're working i cut his weight right he knows how to cut weight but i'm with him i'm helping him assist him to do it we're making that 140 again he hasn't made that in a while right he's older anyway during fight week you're bored sometimes a lot of downtime so we start watching charles bronson movies all right. And then when I worked at Snack, when I first met Chris, when Daniel Jacobs was there, when he fought Triple G, we, um, I had an office. I had all my stuff. Every time Chris asked me for something, I had, had it. He was like, damn, you got everything here, man. You got all kinds, you like got everything. Like whatever we need, you have it. Extra gloves, whatever, wraps. You got this supplement stuff. You got all this shit, right? And he goes, and I go, well, yeah. And he goes, well, and Stephen Edwards, who trained Julian Williams, J-Rock, he used to come to snack. He would say, man, you are a utility man. You're like, <laughs> you're like Batman, man. You got the like, utility belt with all this shit in it. So then I was like, I go, uh, when we're watching these Charles Bronson movies, so we watched The Mechanic, right? He's a hitman, right? And John Michael Vince's is with the, Jason Statham, right? No, this was the original with oh, Charles Bronson. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, shit. That, you got to watch the original. If okay. you haven't watched it, you got Charles Bronson, John Michael Vincent. John Michael Vincent is the young guy. And he's going to Charles Bronson. He goes, Who, What are you, man? What is, what's your, he said, I think it was in the 70s term, like, What's your gig, man? Or what do you do? And he goes, What's your thing? What's your bag? And he goes, Have you ever heard the term mechanic used outside its normal meaning? And he goes, yeah, you're a hit man. You're a, you're, a, you're a cooler. You're a hit man. But Chris goes, that's you. You're a mechanic. You're a boxing mechanic. You know how to, you train fighters. You cut their weight. You wrap hands. You do the conditioning. Basil, you're a, you're a boxing mechanic. So during the bubble, Chris also does commentating. So he was on an off, off-site commentating. So when I'm on... He sees me on TV. He goes, that's Mike Basil. That's, that's the mechanic right there. And ESPN jumped on it. So they started putting Mike, the mechanic, Basil. Oh, Boom. Dude. That's how it happened. I didn't know that, dude. That's how it happened. So I'm, I actually call it Cutman Mechanic, but that's how it happened. And it was from the Charles Bronson movie. Wow. As long as we've known each other, man, this is like this conversation. I've learned so much more about you. <laughs> it happened that way. But everything always just kind of stumbles in. It always just happens like that. So 
Amazing. But this has been great, man. I'd love to do it more. Dude, we're going to do, we're definitely going to do more of these. Yeah. Brother, thank you so much for your time and just being a friend all these years and uh, always having my back. Always, always. always. Learned so much from you, Mike, honestly. Like you saw the one fighter when you first walked in. She's like, I know you. He talks about you all the time. (laughs) You don't even know who you are. (laughs) Oh, I finally got a face to the name. All right. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. You got it. Until next time. All right, man. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path, and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. 